Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Log Talk Radio Show. NASCA is the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, and you can listen to us now, or we'd love to hear you hear from you later as well. So, um, we are on scan number three one two three this evening, and excited to introduce you to our our special guest. Um, but first, I'd like to let you know my name. I always forget that. I'm really bad about that. My name is Kim Lakin, and I am your host for this evening. And my beautiful co-host, Penelope, is on with me this evening. Okay. And um, Hello. just yeah. excited, excited to have you here. I'm glad you're here with us tonight. <laughs> so we have a single purpose at NASCA, and that is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional traumas, and neglect. And we do so with two goals. One, by educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, also known as CSA, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths and providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone who's interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And again, I am on, we are scan number 3123 this evening, and we'd love to have you call in and be a part of our panel if you'd like to join us. And... Um, Penelope will meet you on the back line and let you in. That address number to call is 616-595-2118. And again, we'd love to have you join us. So our special guest this evening is Tom. Um, asked him what it was, and then we started talking about everything. I apologize, Tom. <laughs> I lost it up anyway. But um, he is from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he was born and raised in the Twin Cities in the metro area. He's the third of five children. It's a nice, crazy house. I'm sure you grew up in. 
As a youth and growing into adulthood, he always seemed to feel out of place, as if he didn't really fit in or didn't belong. So in his early 30s, he was diagnosed with an acquired brain injury, which I told him I'd love to hear more about that, too, because we haven't, I'm not sure what that exactly means. Um, and that, and then that required endoscopic neurosurgery. After that event, he began a long and winding journey of self-discovery and self-improvement. In early 2010, he began getting into men's work, which is men working on themselves, become the best and healthiest version of themselves that they could possibly be. Within a few years, in 2016, he was hired as the office manager of the Twin Cities Men's Center, where he provides a variety of services for men looking to grow in body, mind, and spirit. An educational nonprofit, CCMC, provides services for men seeking to grow in body, mind, and spirit, and advocates for healthier families and community relationships. So now that's in its 47th year of operation. I love that. Um, and the Men's Center enjoys the respect of the community it serves and features such programs as anger management, support groups, and workshops. Tom is also a coach trained in IPEC, accredited coach training. Companies um, all have an excellent approach with proven methodology that delivers effective results. And so I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that as well. Um, the key to awakening that potential, he says, is in our unique consciousness-based approach to coach and training. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Again, I'm sorry I botched your name up. That's all right. <laughs> many many so people do. <laughs> Yeah, many people botch the name, so um, I'm used to it. So, <laughs> I just yeah, even when I'm like checking in at like, even oh, when God. I'm checking in at places, they'll ask me you know first name and they'll say last name, and I don't even pronounce it. I just spell it just so they can get it down right. So <laughs> you should say okay. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us this evening, and we're excited to hear about all the work that you're doing and um, kind of what puts you on this journey. So it's your sure. evening. We'll let you take over. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So, and I really apologize for not making it on Monday. That was totally Monday was just a day beyond days. So, glad to be beyond Monday, but I'm glad to be here tonight to help out and and uh, be interviewed tonight. So, thanks for having me. So, it was a hot summer night in June of 1969. <laughs> I was born in June of 1969 in the Twin Cities area. Uh, I was a third of five kids, and uh, we lived in a in a um, suburb of Minneapolis. And and we were growing up. And initially, as a young child, I just felt very, I felt very confident and very in control and very sure of myself and just very much in place. And everything felt right for me. Uh, and then right around the time I turned nine, I was going to public school, and our public school closed, so my school closed, and we also moved across town to another suburb. So, and we, so I had a school change and a location change, and that switch going into fourth grade, just I don't know what it, what it is. I've heard that you know kids at certain ages, if they move the the area where they live and they move schools, it can be really challenging for them. And I think that was what was going on with me because I got to this new school and. 
am I old school where everybody liked me and it was fun and it was cool and I, I just fit in so well and it was where I was meant to be? This new school was just not not where I was meant to be. I couldn't figure out how to fit in or what to do. Um, the kids just seemed different and they didn't get me and I didn't get them. I wanted to get them, but it just uh, it just didn't work out well. Um, I just I was just a, the odd man out. Of course, in most classes, there's a couple kids that are the odd ducks out, so I, I fit in with the odd ducks, so, for better or for worse. And that just seemed to be kind of a continuing theme for me as I as I got older. I just never seemed to really find a place that fit or that worked for me. I, I just didn't feel like I belonged. So even even going into high school, that that was still kind of a thing. And and into college, so uh, let's see. So, uh, so I got into college, went through college, and I just I was just working jobs and that. But so you wanted to hear about the the ABI, so I'll talk about that. So, and it's funny because so ABI, most people are are familiar with when they think of brain injuries, they think of TBIs, which is traumatic brain injury, and people get that. You're in a car accident, you get hit in the head. There's some trauma to your head which causes a brain injury, and people seem to really get that. Um, because it's it's so easy to relate to, but acquired brain injuries um, are are very different, and I even hesitate to say that because, in my perspective, every single person that has a brain injury, each brain injury is as unique as a fingerprint. There, there's just no two brain injuries that are identical. They're, they might be have similar names and stuff, but the way they manifest themselves and the way they affect the person are, are all very different. And so mine was an acquired brain injury, and what was happening with me. They're not sure if they started shortly before I was born or shortly after I was born, but I had what's called a colloidal cyst. And this colloidal cyst was growing in my brain. And it was growing right near, so if you think of your brain and your spinal column, so the spinal column goes up into your brain, and what happens uh, every day is um, your body will pump spinal fluid up into your brain, and it'll drain spinal fluid out of your brain through, through the spinal column. And right up the top of the spinal column where all the stuff comes in is where this little cyst was sitting. And as I grew and grew, it, it also grew and grew. But it was very small. It was growing very slowly. They think it was probably growing at about the rate of a millimeter a decade maybe. So real, real slow growth. Um, and when I got into my 20s, I actually started noticing um, symptoms of it. And I didn't realize this until much later because I didn't really have a, an issue with it until I was in my 30s. But what I started noticing was... Um, you know, I, like everyone else on the planet, we sneeze. We sneeze. And as I sneezed as a kid, it was no big deal. But when I got into my 20s, um, sneezing kind of hurt. It, kinda, it felt like it popped my ears. So it just felt, felt very uncomfortable when I'd sneeze. Um, and then I got into my early 30s, and I, you know, I really never got very sick very often. It was pretty rare for me to get sick, and it was very rare for me to get headaches. But I remember I started getting these really bad headaches that just didn't make sense to me. And um I just didn't feel well. I just overall didn't feel well. And I, uh, let's see, I was going to, I was, I was going to work and uh, every once, a couple times people started saying, did you have, do you have drops in your eyes? Like my eyes have been dilated. And I said, no, I haven't been, have you been to the eye doctor? I'm like, no, I haven't been to the eye doctor. Um, and I started going in to get this, um, this sickness uh, kind of diagnosed and they couldn't really figure out what it was. They thought maybe it was a sinus infection. They could see some build up a fluid in my ears, but they weren't sure what was going on with it. Um, and uh, I, at one point, I remember starting in my, in my visual field, right, right in the center of my visual field was just a tiny little pinprick of gray, which I it didn't really notice it at first because it was so small, I didn't notice it. But after it, the gray started getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, um, 
And I kept going to the doctor. We're trying to figure it out. They put me on this med. They put me on that med. I remember one time I had gotten to work. And I, not to go too gross on everyone, but I remember at work I pulled up, got out of my car, and I walked over to uh, to the grass, and I vomited this, like, um, fluorescent yellow fluid. Like, I'd never seen a fluorescent yellow fluid like that. But it was it was dis- a distinctly different color than any fluid I'd really seen before. Um, so I'm starting to get the feeling that something severe is is not is not right here. So I remember when I'd gone to the doctor and they they gave me these one pills and they said, okay, I want you to take these pills, take them for this long, and then um, but be careful because the side effects could be really strange and we don't you know so be expecting that. And I was like, well, what could they be like? And they said, well, it, it varies, but be prepared for some possible unusual side effects. And okay, so I thought that was you know what was to be expected. And I remember I was laying in bed one night watching TV. And suddenly, instead of watching two TVs, the two TVs morphed, or one TV morphed into two TVs. So I was suddenly seeing two TVs. My vision had literally doubled. And I found out later that for someone to truly, truly have double vision, it, it's extremely rare and almost impossible. But obviously, for me, it did happen. So my one TV turned into two TVs. I remember sitting in bed thinking, wow. I must be tireder than I thought. I really need to go to sleep. So I went to sleep think, thinking that when I wake up in the morning, I'll be back to single vision and everything will be just fine. Well, I woke up the next morning, still had double vision. I thought, well, that's, that's a strange side effect, and that's not usual. But I you know, tried to get through it, and it was funny because I had double vision, and really – Hindsight's twenty twenty. No pun intended, but hindsight's twenty twenty. But uh, I really shouldn't have been driving. But I found that if I closed one eye, I would have single vision and could could manage driving, which was bad idea. If you're listening to this and you have double vision, do not yeah. drive with double vision. Don't do it. I I did it and it was fine, but don't do it. So. Um, and again, now that the vision was doubled, there was still now there's two p- little gray pinpricks in the center center of my vision. And as the days went by, those pinpricks started growing into bigger circles so I started having these very significant blind spots in the middle of my field of vision and I called the doctor and I said well you know you said this you know about the weird side effects um should this be happening and they're like well no that doesn't sound right we we don't think that should be happening but give it a couple more how long has it been have, since you took the drugs I told him I said give it a couple more days if if it doesn't clear up in a couple of days give us a call back so I thought, okay, well, they probably know what they're talking about. So I did that, and I gave it a couple more days, still the double vision. Um, and I called back to talk to them about it. And the nurse that I talked to that time, she seemed really concerned. She was like, what are you telling me? So I kind of described it to her. She said, she said, can you hang on for a second? I said, okay. And so she put me on hold, came back a few minutes later, asked me a few more questions. She goes, can you hang on for a second? I said, sure. She goes, so she puts you on hold again, goes away for <laughs> comes back. She goes, is there any chance you can come in here like right now? I was like, do you want me, you want me to come in right now? She said, yes, come in right now if you can. I said, okay. So I went into the doctor. Um, and I w- <laughs> that's the funny thing about this brain injury. Uh, it's been so unique. I saw lots of doctors that were really fascinated to see me. All the doctors loved to see me because uh, I was quite the unique <laughs> specimen. But uh, So I went into the doctor, and uh, he looked at me. He did some exams, and he did this, and he did that, and he checked my blood pressure, and he goes, Man, he goes, you know, there's something going on, and I can't tell what it is, but there's some pressure in your head, and I can see there's some papilledema, the optic nerves on on your, are, are, um, the, um, the blood vessels have popped on your optic nerves, and there's some trauma to your optic nerves, and he goes, I thought maybe it was high blood pressure, and I checked your blood pressure, and he's like, I wish my blood pressure was as good as your blood pressure, so it wasn't that, so he eliminated all (laughs) these things, and, and he couldn't figure out what it was, and then. Uh, then he he brought in another doctor because they loved because my and 
looking in my eyes, they were like, when did you have your eyes dilated? And I hadn't been because they were just uh, the damaged my optic nerves. I just was not seeing stuff, so my my eyes were dilating to take in more light. Um, And they brought in another doctor because he wanted to look. And, of course, it's easy to look in my eyes because they're so dilated. Um, And while they were doing this, they had another person on the phone calling a hospital trying to see when they could get me in to look at me because they weren't sure what was happening. So uh, they came back and they said, can you go to the hospital tomorrow morning? I said, we've got an appointment set for you if you can take it. I'm like, well, I think I had a couple days off work too at the time. So I was like, yeah, I, I can do it. So I went in there and it was the same thing. He was really fascinated. The doctors were fascinated. Um, kept looking and couldn't figure out what it was. And finally they, they did um, they did a CAT scan. They did a CAT scan and they said, okay, you can go home. And we'll give you a call in a couple hours and we'll, we'll, we'll let you know what's going on. So, so I went home to sit with my double vision and watch double TV you know, and stuff and just relax. And they called me. Uh, they said they called me like an hour or two, I think. And they called like three hours later than they said they would, so which is kind of stressful. But um, they said they couldn't say exactly for sure what was happening, but they said that there was some type of, a, I don't know if they called it a cyst at the time or a tumor in my brain, and, and they wanted me to go see another specialist because uh, um, they were concerned about that. So, and I might need brain surgery. And I was like, wow, that's not what I expected at all because you know, I was just having some headaches and stuff and thinking of a sinus infection, now, now I need brain surgery. And I remember this too very clearly. It was 2001 because... Um, my parents were out of the country, and it was uh, it was September 11th, 2001, right around that time when whenever when all the world saw two twin towers fall, I saw four towers fall. So I had that that nice memory of seeing four towers falling as opposed to two towers falling. So that's how I always remember when what year that was. So. When it happened, yeah. Yeah, my parents happened to be out of the country at the time, so they, so we didn't want to tell them that this was going on because they weren't able to come back because the planes were flying. So it was like, you know, and we didn't want to worry them, so uh, we didn't tell them about that. And uh, so I, I met with the one doctor, and we uh, eventually my my parents were able to come back. And we went to the doctor to see uh, about brain surgery. We sat down with one doctor, and he kind of did some exams and checked things out. And he said he went over like three different brain procedures that he could do for me. So. Um, Oh, so and I'll stop there real quick because I talked about a TBI. So and this is an ABI, is an acquired brain injury. So an acquired brain injury comes about naturally. It just comes. It's a natural cause. So there's no trauma. There's no head impact. There's no car accident, motorcycle accident, bat to the head or something. It started growing when I was a kid, or very young. And so there was. It was just acquired. This is what they call it. There was no trauma involved. So. Um, I remember my parents were back, and he talked about three different procedures that he could do for me. And, he talked about my job and what I do at my job and how things go, and he said, "You know what? I could do any one of those three, any one of these three surgeries for you." He, but he said, "You know what? I just, if I did these, I'm not convinced that you'd be able to do your job anymore. You wouldn't have the same quality of life that you have now if if I did these to you because the just the chances of them coming through, you'll probably survive, but the chances of you coming out the same is, is, is very low. He said, but there's a doctor at the U of M who does a different type of surgery, and this would probably be more appropriate, and you'd probably be able to have a higher quality of living and the same quality of living you have before. So I'm going to refer you to that doctor. So bless that first doctor for referring me to another doctor because that was, I think, the right thing to do. And uh, we went to this other doctor at the U of M, and he did some exams and stuff. But what he was going to do is he was going to he would drill a hole because what he could see so basically the cyst that was sitting there where, where my, my spinal fluid flows in and out of my brain, it had finally grown to the size where it was big enough to block the hole. So if you know what a ball valve is, what was happening was spinal fluid would come up into my brain, it would push the cyst out of the way, and it would it let the 
spinal fluid in the brain. But when it went to drain out, the little cyst would just move and cover the hole. So the fluid couldn't go out. So my brain was continually accumulating more and more spinal fluid, but it wasn't letting any out. So this pressure was building up in my brain. Um, and of course, when I sneezed, that, that was, that was, it was, it, you know, there's a pressure thing happening there. So that I was noticing it 10 years earlier, because this is happening now in my early 30s. So I was noticing it 10 years earlier, but I had no idea what it was. And now I was getting to the point where all that pressure needed to go somewhere. So the pressure was being shunted down my optic nerves, which was frying my optic nerves, which was giving me the double vision. And by, the t- by this time where I'm at with this doctor, I mean, I still have the double vision, but those little pinpricks of gray are very large. I mean, they're ju- I mean, if I were to talk to someone and look them directly in the eye or what I believe would be their eye, I wouldn't see their head at all. I couldn't see their head at all. I could see maybe their body below them. I could see to the left and right, maybe over their head, but I couldn't see their, that size, that size of their head I wouldn't be able to see. If I wanted to see their eyes, I'd need to either look to the left or look to the right or look up and down and kind of catch their face in my periphery. So it was really challenging. So uh, yeah, so I ended up going in for uh, neurosurgery. He ended up drilling a hole through my skull. Um, and then he kind of shifted the right. brain because there's this channel down the center of your brain. It kind of uses the hemispheres, the split, you know, there's like that line in the middle. He, he went in kind of on the side, uh, like at maybe like the 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock position. And then he just kind of shifted the brain over so that that channel was by the hole. And he went down through the middle to the part. And he wanted because he wasn't sure what he'd be able to do. He said, I, you know, I'm going to go in. Goal number one is to drain the spinal fluid. We're just going to drain the spinal fluid. That's goal number one. Number two, I'm going to look at it. See what I think. He said, it's, it's possible I could remove the entire cyst. Uh, it's possible that I won't remove any of the cyst. Um, more than likely, I'll be able to remove some of it. And, I, you know, I'll take out as much as I feel I can safely do. But if it's like touching things or connected to things that I don't want to pull apart, I'm, I'm probably going to leave some of it in there. So that's what he actually did. He ended up taking out a large portion of the cyst, but he didn't take out all of it. So, um, and then there was the, the conversation we had to have, too, because I had so many interesting conversations with doctors when this was happening, because uh, he wanted to, give, wanted to give me options. He said, well, you know, if you were a small child with a hole in your skull that I'm going to drill through there, he goes, I would not, I would just um, stitch it up and leave it, because the, the, the plates of the skull and things, you're, it's going to be growing and um, because the other option would be to put a titanium plate in there. But if he puts a titanium plate in there for a small child as the, the child in the hole gets bigger, the titanium plate's now kind of floating in there, so he wouldn't do that. He said, if you were older and your brain was, re- or your skull was really solid and not changing anymore, I probably would put a titanium plate in there. But he's like, you're kind of in between there. So he's like, do you want a titanium plate or do you not want a titanium plate? And I had to think about it, because I, I, I really thought I really thought the idea of being able to deflect bullets off my skull with a titanium plate would be really cool. <laughs> but I decided, I said, you know, I, I, you know, as cool as that would be, I, I said, why don't you just decide what you think is best when you're in the, in the procedure? So, so once the procedure was over with, I had to ask him, do I have a titanium plate to my skull or not? He said, nope, no titanium plate. And it would have been really small anyway, so no titanium plate in the skull. So I can still feel where the hole in my skull is. So, um, and, of course, after the surgery, oh. I still had the double vision for, I don't know, a few days. It took a while before. I remember, I very clearly remember the double vision coming back to singular. It was like, oh, it's, it's back to singular. But the, <laughs> still, the, the blind spot was still there, but it was getting smaller. And as they were doing exams in, of my eyes and that, most people naturally, I don't know if you know this, but most people naturally have one blind spot in each eye where, where your optic nerves come in. Um, I Because of this, I had a bunch in both eyes. So um, there's lots of challenges because there's just stuff that I, I can't see. And 
so your skin is designed uh, when it gets cut it's designed to heal from damages like that but your your uh, inside your eye is not designed that way because you're not supposed to get damage inside your eyes so um, the healing they weren't sure was going to happen at all for my blind spots but as they've checked it over the years my blind spots are getting smaller but they're they're healing really 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 slowly so um, so that's my acquired wow. brain injury my my going blind and all that fun stuff so Wow. Uh, and one of the big impacts. Oh, go ahead. To, I was, that had to have been really, really frightening to go through all of that. And... It, it was because that year too. I remember seeing uh, the uh, Thanksgiving Day paper came out, and I was looking at the Thanksgiving Day paper, and there was a story of a of a high school guy who lived in a suburb not far from us. Um, he also had a colloidal cyst in his brain, and he apparently had a different type of surgery. He'd had it like six or eight months beforehand, and uh, he came out of surgery in a coma, and he was in a coma for so many months, and he'd now come out of the coma, but he was learning how to talk again and learn how to walk again, and, um, you know, the, the saying there, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, that very easily could have been me because, you know, you get to have the fun conversations with the doctors when you go in for surgery like this of every possible outcome, everywhere from you know, you'll come out just perfectly fine as if nothing happened at all, or to, you know, you could die on the table, you could stroke out on the table, you can come out paralyzed, you can quadriplegic, paraplegic. They give you through all the scenarios, all these things you know in advance. So, yeah, so in a lot of ways, I was really, really fortunate, especially when I look at that that other guy. He just, you know, but he was fight, fighting back and he was working it. But um, and one thing I learned about it, too, is it's really, really strange when it comes to uh, – Memory, memory is such a, a a bizarre thing because I forgetting things after brain surgery is a very different from forgetting things prior to brain surgery. Because like, um, and I've read pe- people say too, it, it's something that you really can't explain. I've tried to explain it to people, but I don't know if they ever really get it. Um, because it's just like it's just like one thing. It's kind of like is if if you're if you're older and you remember the older TV sets that were tube TVs. If you had the TV on and you just pulled the plug out while it was on, the picture would just go poof, down like that. And you plug it back in, and you just get yeah. a little spark, and it starts slowly coming up. It's kind of like that. It kind of like things just shut off. Like your brain just shuts off, and you don't know anything. And then it's things just kind of start slowly coming back. Um, and uh, it was really bad after brain surgery. Yeah. I could be in mid-sentence and just forget even what the next word I was going to say or even what we're talking about mm-hmm. or who I'm talking to. And I have... I say that to people and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that happens to me all the time. I forget. But it, it's, it's yeah. different. It, it feels <laughs> sure. different than different, that. Yeah. The way I describe yeah. it is prior to brain surgery, if something like, like that were to happen and I'd forget where I was going with the conversation, I could kind of jump back a few steps and follow my path back to where I was and then continue where I was going. Mm-hmm. That's how it used to feel. <laughs> but when it's a brain yeah. injury thing, it's more like um, it's more like standing in the in the center of a cave where the walls are about 50 feet away from you on any side and it's completely dark and you have to stay there and you just have to reach out to touch the sides it's like there's there's just nothing there's nothing there to grab to so when when you forget it's just like it's gone um i remember one time and this was this was probably more than 10 years and it's my memory's gotten much better since then but it's still it, it'll crop up and it, it depends on you know how much uh, sleep i'm getting and if i'm taking good care of myself but i remember one time i was i was talking on the phone um and i was standing in my kitchen a uh, very familiar f- place for me and it did my brain just kind of shut off for a second and I, it, my brain started coming back up and I, I was like okay where am i 
Okay, I'm in my kitchen. What's that I'm hearing? Oh, someone's talking to me. Oh, I'm on the phone. I'm talking to someone. Okay, who am I talking to? What are we talking about? And starting to listen to them, trying to figure out what, what they were talking about. You know, And they're probably in a conversation. They're expecting me to respond. And I'm not even sure who they are at this point. So, But that doesn't happen very often. Um, so I've gotten a lot better with that. But even lately, I've been, I've been doing a lot of stuff. And, and uh, just today I was talking to somebody. And just simple name recall, I'm just, my memory just seems like it's kind of going back downhill again. But it got much better. And, you know, there's things I can do. Uh, fish oil is supposed to help and some other things. But, yeah. So it's been a, an ongoing struggle. And, um, you know, but again, the outcomes that I could have had from my brain surgery could have been so much worse. I mean, I, I really have, was really, really lucky in that regard. So, um and then, oh so Ron, about uh, wow, quite what's that? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Quite the story. You know, um, would you mind if we see if Penelope has a question, or we also have sure. a panel member on the phone? Sure. And, um, and I'll just before we get in, I just want to, real quick. I want to say okay. it was interesting because okay. I think my uh, my surgery was on a Friday, so I remember sitting at home on Thursday, and I I remember going, okay, so tomorrow I'm going in for surgery, and on Saturday, I'm either dead or I'm alive. And I really don't know which one is going to be because it was that possible that I could have been dead by Saturday. But, um, yes, it was, it was really interesting to sit with that. And since that happened to me, I've kind of, I feel like I've had a different kind of take on death or less, less fear of death because I've kind of sat with the real mm-hmm. prospect of death being just hours away. So, But, yeah, questions, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, just kind of, in context of what you're talking about. And um, I've had a lot of surgeries as well. And I started having surgeries when I was like seven years old. So it's, it's kind of odd to me when people say, I'm so scared because I'm like, I just go with the flow. I I don't know. It's just weird. It's it's weird that I kind of have a a different view on, I guess, maybe just the whole process of possibly dying. Right, right. Maybe I've just been in a lot of surgeries that I've, so I can just kind of relate to that. Just that yeah, and I always kind of think of it. There's a lot that I can't, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine all you I always kind of, go ahead. I kind of refer to it as like gifted time because maybe, you know, I was quote unquote supposed to die at 32 and I didn't. So maybe all this time after that has just been a gift for me. So, you know. <laughs> Beautiful. As you're, a few hundred yeah, years married ago, at that point? No, I've never been married, right. so. But a few hundred years oh, ago, I married. probably okay. would have, no, I would have gone blind and probably died a few hundred years ago. But now we're at a point where that's not uh, not necessarily the, the case anymore. So your parents were just walking with you through this. Yeah, and, and I was, I was, I owned a home with. Talking me. What's that? What's that? You were talking about we at one point, so I was just, I just assumed you were married. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah. So uh, my parents were like, and at the time I was living in a house, with, I owned a house with my, with my brother, so he was around, and I had a roommate that was a buddy of mine that was around. So I had people around it that could uh, take care of me and, and help me out. And I had a sister that was not far away that was able to come over and help, or I could go over to her place and stay there for a while, so, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's what we say. People around that'll help. But I will say uh, this. Yeah. I will say a post-operative sleep is some of the best sleep I've ever had. I slept so good after my surgery. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, but go ahead with the question if you've got questions. Bio too. Yeah. Okay. Penelope, are you there? Would you like to come in and say anything? Excuse me, I am. Thank you, Kim. And Tom, wow, you know, I'm just I'm listening to you as you are 
you know, telling us really the, the timeline, right, of your diagnosis and, um, and also really articulately explaining what an acquired, you know, brain injury is because I didn't even know um, that those existed like you mentioned. I'm familiar with traumatic brain injury but not acquired. And so as I'm listening to you, you know, talk about it, two things struck me. And the first is that um, hearing as your symptoms progressed um, and went from basically you think you had a sinus infection to being told you know, in a very short period of time that you needed to have brain surgery and that you may never be the same again, that's very traumatic um, in, my, in my book. I was, I was, um, I felt like I was walking with you as you were describing it. And, and I was, I can just, you know, in your shoes, I can just, I can just imagine feeling like you had the carpet pulled from underneath your feet. And, mm. um, and that, you know, trauma is defined as something that, you know, something that happens to you um, that is um, profound and significant and out of your control. Um, and that is what you have experienced with your acquired brain injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I, you know, I had a similar experience in the last, you know, 12 months. My, my husband was diagnosed um, with stage three, you know, prostate cancer and he was fine one day. And then the next day, um, it was very a very fast, um, you know, sequence of events. And so, you know, I, I've kind of recently walked in the shoes of, you know, you think it's something minor one minute, the next minute, you know, it's very, very a very, very serious situation. So you know, I could relate on that level. And um, and uh, so, I, you know, the, the other comment I want to make regarding what you share with us is you just seem so calm. And there's this tone of your voice where you just seem so positive. And so um, either that's just the tone of your voice and that's the way you always come across or you're just a very, very positive person. And um, you have this calm, you know, quality of positivity. And I have to wonder if, you know, your outcome was successful partly because of your attitude. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, well, I definitely certainly have my down and my negative moments, that's for sure. And and the funny thing is – at the time of the surgery, I was actually singing for a rock band at the time. We were trying to secure our first gig. And so we're trying to secure our first gig and have to go to the band rehearsal and say, you know what, I got this thing and I could be dead in a couple of weeks. So maybe we should hold off on booking that date. You know, kind of so it just really mm-hmm. threw a whole lot of stuff uh, for a loop. But um, can, can you repeat the question again? There's my brain injury showing up. Uh, I'm not sure I'm following the question uh, again. Well, well, I was wondering if, you know, because you just seem that you're, you just seem – that you have such a calm and positive attitude. If you feel like, you know, having a po- your positive attitude contributed to a successful outcome of your surgery, because you related a story of another um, another person that had an acquired, you know, brain injury that was in a coma for some time. So I'm wondering if, you know, your po- if you could, you attribute your positive attitude, positive outcome that you had with your surgery. Uh yeah, good question. Um... You know, it's funny you say that because I do think the attitude and your perspective uh, can have a huge impact on how you tell the story of your life. I mean, I've got a good friend of mine that um, he just uh, (laughs) – I I, I don't – say this to his face but i think of him as mr armageddon because everything for him is a big disaster and he was talking as he was talking to me today he said oh this happened and I was like, it was a disaster it was a disaster it was a disaster and i'm going man come on you're fine 
you're alive, you've got a house, you've got a job, nothing physically happened to you, a couple things didn't go the way you wanted them to, but this is not a disaster. It's not a disaster. I, I'm always trying to recognize how blessed I am, you know, over, you know, there's, there's other people in the world who, I mean, I, I feel like me, I've got something to complain about because there's other people in the world that really have a tough time. And um, right. I've just recognized, I mean, I talk, talk and think about gratitude all the time. I mean, just right, right where I am right now, I have a roof over my head. I have four walls around me. It's, it's, it's heated. Uh, I have hot and cold running water just a few feet away. I have food in the refrigerator. I have electricity. I have all these blessings that people in other parts of the world, you know, it's just not available to them. And it's just so common for us. We, we take it for granted. I try to be very, very aware of all the incredible gifts that we have that just, just you know, you know, I almost don't know how to describe it, just how blessed we are. Just being in this country is such an advantage over so many um, other people in the world. I try to be very appreciative of all these advantages that we have just by being here. So, you know, and even where I'm, where I'm right now, I mean, I'm in, in a room in my house. Well, the reality is we're in Minnesota and it's it's below freezing and there are probably people tonight sitting out under the bridge and that's where they're going to sleep tonight. They're out under a bridge and the next night they'll be out under a bridge again. I mean, in that, or in a tent, in, you know, sub-zero weather or sub-freezing weather. Um, and I heap God's blessings upon them and wish them all the best. But, you know, um, I'm grateful. I am grateful that, that all the blessings that I have, that I'm not in that situation. So. so you do have a very, a very positive attitude, an attitude of gratitude. And, and if I already guess, I think that that, that that mindset has helped you um, in this, you know, through this uh, process, you know, ongoing. Yep. It sounds like it's going to be a lifelong journey for you. Right, right. Yeah, and I want to make sure, because I got a couple, there's even a, a couple stories that I didn't put in the bio that I want to share with you, but it's, I'm looking at the time, so we do have some time, but I want to make sure I get to everything. So um, around 2008, the end of 2008, yeah. when everybody got laid off, I was one of them. I'd never been let go from a job before in my life, so um I really didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do or what my next job would be. And I just kind of stumbled across the uh, the profession of life coaching. And it was strange because I remember hearing about it and I, in my head I went, life coaching? I went, I have no idea what that is. But something in my head said, but that's what you're supposed to be doing. I went, okay. That's interesting, but it doesn't help much because I still don't know what that is. So I went on a journey of trying to find out what this thing is that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I found myself uh, enrolled in, in coaching school and coaching training, and uh, I, I went through the, the Coaches Training Institute and got the, went through their entire program. Then I went through their certification program and got certified as a certified professional coactive coach. Um, and around that time, too, one of the things I was, I was thinking about was um, what would it be like to serve or, or coach with people who are or have been in prison, what would that be like? Because that would be a, a great population to uh, to work with, I thought. And as I would say that to people, I got lots of discouragement. I got lots of, what are you talking about? What are you thinking? You've got to be crazy. You don't want to be around those people. You don't want them to know you, see you, know where you live. Stay away from people who have been in prison. So I got all this negative. So I kind of gave up on that. Um, and I started doing some more men's work. I, I did a retreat with the Mankind Project. It was a really, really powerful weekend. And uh, I got connected with some groups after that. And one of the guys in my group, he said, oh, you know, you should talk to this guy because he does volunteer work in prison. I went, oh, that sounds interesting. So he introduced me to him, and I started talking to him. And 
I said, so what do you do in prison? He kind of was talking about uh, the things they do. He, so he, he's volunteer, it's volunteering with an organization called uh, the Alternatives to Violence Project. And he was talking about how they, they talk to guys and they do exercise and they kind of map things out and they explore stuff. And I kind of I was sitting there going, boy, this is not exactly coaching, but it's very close to coaching. But it's got some very coach-like components. And as I listened to him talking for a while, and finally at, a, at one point I said, you know, do you guys – need any help doing that? And he, he almost fell right out of his chair. He was like, you want to help us? I said, well, if you want help, he goes, you know, I'll let you run a weekend if you want to. And I went, whoa, 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 let's slow down. I, I don't know anything about this. I'm not ready to run a weekend, but if you want some help, I'll be able to help you. Um, and so I did. I uh, went through the process of the, of the Alternatives Violence Project. I went through their three weekend workshops. And uh, Alternatives Violence is a program. Uh, it's, it's a global program, um, and they it, so they do workshops in prisons and they do workshops in the community. Um, Minnesota, it's mostly in prisons. I know California does a lot more in the community, and it actually came about because uh, sometime in the 70s, I think it was. Attica prison, I'm not sure, but it was a prison out, out on the East Coast, had a really, really big riot, and like a bunch of corrections officers were killed, and a bunch of inmates were killed, and once it all settled and everything calmed down, it was actually the inmates that said, hey, you know what, we don't want to live like this anymore. We, we have to stay in prison, but we don't have to stay violence. We want to find an alternative to violence. And um, and they got connected with the Quakers. And the Quakers have a long history of doing volunteer work and serving people in prison. So uh, between the prisoners and the, and the Quakers, they developed this program called the Alternatives Violence Project. And there's three two-and-a-half-day workshops they go through. The one is – the first one is the basic, fancy name. It's the first one, so they call it the basic, where you're introduced to the ideas and philosophies and techniques uh, used in alternatives to violence. And uh, the second one is called the advanced. So in the advanced, what they do is um, – the facilitators going into the advance don't even know what they're going to do for the weekend because they get there on Friday night, and they, they, the group comes together, they build some community. Then they ask the group what is important to them and what they would like to work on for the entire weekend. So the group comes to a consensus of what they want to work on for the entire weekend. Then the facilitators design the weekend Friday night. <laughs> they come back Saturday morning and start it. And the third workshop is called uh, it's called uh, Training to Facilitate, where they take a bunch of participants, and they basically go through another workshop, but they have the participants – play the role of facilitators and kind of coach them through being facilitators. And how that kind of applies to what's happened here is, which I think is interesting because it kind of ties into the men's center too. I've worked with a lot of guys in prison. Prior to COVID, I was spending anywhere between, I'd say 100 and 300 hours per year in prison working with men on nonviolent conflict resolution. And a lot of them were, were in there on sex offenses. Um, and I generally wouldn't ask a guy, you know, what he was in there for. Because it wasn't why I was there. But, you know, as you get to know the guys, you work with them more, a lot of times they, they want to they wanna share. They want to get stuff off their chest. They want to connect at a deeper level. And a, a number of guys were, had been in there for sex offenses. And as you get to know them and hear their story, um, it, it seems really obvious why they're a sex offender. Because, I mean, I worked with one guy, and he uh, – he told me he wasn't certain, but from what they're able to ascertain, they think his mother started raping him when he was three. It, it may have been earlier than that, but his memory doesn't go back that far. So his mother was raping him from the, from the age of three, and her boyfriend was raping his sister. So it, where he grew up, um, the adults raped the children. That's, that's how the quote-unquote normal family worked in his reality. So, of course, he grows up and becomes an adult, so what does he do? He commits a sex offense because that's kind of what his reality was like. So um, 
there's that kind of recurring theme of, you know, it's not just new behaviors. It's almost like inherited behaviors or learned behaviors. So, and how that kind of applies to the men's center. So uh, I'm the office manager of the Twin Cities Men's Center in Minneapolis. And like you said, we provide resources for men seeking to grow in body, mind, and spirit from that foundation we advocate for healthier family relationships and community relationships. And so our offerings come in four different areas. We, we offer an anger management class for, for men. We offer uh, presentations. Anyone can come and do a presentation at our location if they'd like. Um, we have a family law clinic once a month where, where for a small donation, men or women can meet with a family law attorney and ask any questions about custody, child support, uh, you know, all that stuff, anything uh, divorce related. But then the other category is our support groups. And that's kind of where this kind of fits in because if you look at all our support groups, we have one support group that's called a sexual trauma and abuse survivors where you go oh child abuse abuse survivors that would be a perfect fit for that and some of the other groups you look at them and go well they're not a fit but you know they they actually really are a lot of them are like we've got a a group called general men's issues where it tends to focus on divorce and uncoupling but it's really about whatever a guy wants to talk about whatever he wants to get off his chest so it could be related child abuse um we have a group called Addiction Busters. And you think, well, Addiction Busters, well, child abuse isn't addictive. It's not an addictive thing. But if you think about it, people that get abused a lot of times will turn to a chemical or a drug or something to help them escape or relieve them from, from that trauma they're experiencing. So Addiction Busters um, will work on any kind of addiction. So and it, we, we say it's, it's an alternative to 12-step programs because some people don't like the 12 steps. So we use other, other uh, methodologies in that. And the facilitators for that group are really good. And, you know, people hear addiction and they think the big four. They think, you know, sex addict, drug addict, gambling addict, and, and food addict. Or, you know, they think the, the common ones. But addiction busters will work with you on any addiction that you have. If you're addicted to, to popcorn or if you're addicted to the Kardashians or if you can't put your cell phone down, if you're one of the people who are addicted to your cell phone, or if you're addicted to drama or you're addicted to lying, addiction busters will help you with that addiction. Of course, people who have been abused or child have been abused as children may have those addictions that they can work through. Um, another group that we have that, that really applies there, too, is called uh, Choosing Healthy Sexual Boundaries. Now, the guy that worked with in prison who ended up being a sex offender, he didn't learn healthy sexual boundaries, so he wound up in prison there. So Choosing Healthy Sexual Boundaries are, are guys that, are, that recognize that um, – their behavior may not be appropriate, and, and, and that could have come from being abused as a child, too. So, um, the, and that's a really strong group. We've got, we got very committed guys and very good facilitators, and they're, they're so committed to that group. And they're really committed to uh, helping guys make sure that they're choosing healthy sexual boundaries for themselves and for their community. And, and for, everybody wins when, it, when a guy comes to a support group and really gets a lot out of it and really embraces what it's about. And to tell you, hopefully it's not too long a story, but one of the guys that uh, was attending that group for a while, I'm not sure if he's still attending there, but um, he was in prison for a sex offense. And uh, he, he came up for, and actually in Minnesota it's a little weird because you can go to prison for a sex offense and once your prison sentence is over with, you can stay incarcerated if they decide that you should not be let out again. So there's some people that are, are incarcerated after their prison sentence is over with, which is, seems kind of strange to me, but he was in that situation and he was coming up to, to be released and he was going to be on a ISR. There's three levels of ISR and that's intensive, uh, intensive supervised release where, you know, you gotta, you gotta, like maybe you might have a tracker on your leg or you might have to call in, you know, to your, um, your PO, let them know wherever you're going. You have to be home by 6 p.m., can't leave till 6 a.m. And so uh, he was getting out on ISR. He, he, he really wanted to put the sex offense and all that stuff from his past behind him. He wanted to distance himself from it as much as he possibly could, which 
I get it. I I can understand that. Um, but his uh, his PO, his parole officer, kept saying, you know, you really should try out this boundaries group. You check out the healthy sexual boundaries group. And he he resisted. He did not want to do it. He's like, I you know, I don't want to be around. I don't want to have anything to do with any of that stuff. Don't want to be around guys like that. I don't want to be. I don't want to talk about it. Don't want to be around it. I want to be away from it. But. His PO kept pushing him, pushing him, pushing him. He kept resisting, and finally his parole officer said, look, I'm going to make you a deal. You attend that group one time. You just attend it once. I'm going to put a note in your file that you attended that group, and, and that's only going to look good for you. If you can show that you've attended it once, it's only going to benefit you. He goes, and if you attend it once, I'll never bother you about it again. Never. And he was like, oh, man. If it's going to get this guy off my back about the group, I'll attend that group once. So he went down to attend the group, and uh, he attended the group, and he thought, you know, it wasn't as bad as he thought it was. The guys were kind of nice. They were welcoming, and they seemed to have friends, and they seemed friendly, and it seemed to be very relaxed and calm. And he thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back again. So he went back the next week, and uh, he, he liked it. And at the end of the group, uh, the guy said, hey, you know, we're all going to go to Denny's and have some dessert. Do you want to come with us? And he decided to go out, and he hung around, chatted with him, and had some dessert, and you know, went, went back home. And he started showing up regularly and regularly. He started really liking the group. He started liking the group so much because that group was actually meeting off-site. It was, we're in Minneapolis. That group was actually meeting in St. Paul, but it was still our group. Um, he called me up at the office. He said, you know, I'm, I've been going to this group, and I'm getting choked up. I get choked up when I talk about the prison guys sometimes. He goes, I just, you know, I'm getting so much out of this group. He goes, I've got to give back to the men's center. What can I do to give back to the men's center? And I, you know, being the office manager, you know, take a membership, become a member. So, of course, he became a member. He's like, he's like, I'll be a member, but he's like, that's just not enough. I need to do more because I'm getting so much out of this. What can I do? And I said, well, you know, if you want to, sometimes I need someone to go grab some groceries for me or pick up some supplies, or I always need someone to vacuum or straighten up around here because I'm doing all this other stuff. He's like, I'll be there. He's like, I'll come. To us. He was coming down once a week. He'd he'd run the vacuum around. He'd grab groceries or anything I needed to pick up. And after he was done, he'd just sit in the office. We'd, we'd chat for about a half hour or so, and he'd tell me about tell me a story and tell what was going on. And he's like, I still got to give back more to the men's center. He's like, I want to. I want to be a facilitator. How can I facilitate one of these groups? So we talked about facilitator training, which we happen to have coming up this Saturday at the men's center. Not, not to promote it, but we've got a facilitator training coming up. And he goes, I want to become a facilitator, which is great. The only thing is he's been in prison, and not everybody in the group has been incarcerated, but some have. So when he gets out, for him to become a facilitator, there's kind of like a hierarchy thing, so we've got to really be careful that we're not doing a hierarchy thing. But he was just so grateful. Uh, this is a guy that didn't want to have anything to do with us. He wanted nothing to do with us, um, and I'm not sure exactly what his sex offenses were, but you know, he wanted nothing to do with us, and now he can't do enough for us, which was really cool. So he was a great guy, and I haven't seen him for a while because COVID and all that stuff. But yeah, so that's a big success story where the men's center has been able to support guys um, and women, like uh, like um, sexual trauma and abuse survivors. That's open to women too, and because of that, we have a female facilitator, we have a male and female facilitator for that group because it's open to women. Addiction Busters is open to women. A family law clinic is open to women. So. We really, you know, we used to have a we used to have one support group that was only women, women only. But we, that group has gone away. But uh, we did have a women's only group for a while. So we're really open to anything that's in line with our our mission and vision of of creating a, a you know a healthier community relationships and healthier family relationships. So, uh, so that's kind of the, my prison stories. And I I've talked about my prison stories. People go, "You were in prison?" I'm like, "Well, they let me out every night, so I, I agreed to go because they let me go home every night." So you know, but yes. yeah. If there's more questions, I'd be happy to talk about the prison or the men's center or anything along those lines. Yeah, you know, um, we actually have another caller. 
on the phone, Philip, he's one of our, our regulars, um, and I was wondering if he had anything that he wanted to say. Philip, we opened your line. Did, did you want to say anything to Tom? Do you have any questions or anything? Well, um, have you ever heard of the life freedom class for the men's group thing? I'm not certain that I have. My brain injury is still, I, I, I hate using it as a crutch, but I'm not sure that I have. Okay, I'm just curious because I was in a class like that at my church, and it was about sexual integrity. It was a pretty good class. Cool, very cool. Um, what do you, so is that your paid occupation right now? Yeah, well, I, I, do, I, do, I work for the men's center. I'm also a professional life coach, and I do some contract work for a career company, so those are kind of the three things that I, that I do for pay. Um, for volunteering, I do the volunteer work in prison, which I haven't done for a while because of COVID. And then I also uh, i am the state director for a, 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 a chapter of a global UFO investigation organization, so I run the Minnesota State chapter of, of the Mutual UFO Network in my, in my, in my limited spare time. So. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's all I have to say for now. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Thanks it's for cool calling. that you're volunteering. Though. Thank you. Thank you for helping people like that. Not a problem. There's so many so many cool breakthroughs that happen when I work with guys in prison. It's just, you know, there's so many cool I I don't know. I just there's so many cool breakthroughs that they have. I love being part of having guys have these big breakthroughs and seeing new possibilities for their life where they thought there wasn't any and they're now they've got a whole new outlook and perspective. I just it's so much fun to be part of that. So, it's rewarding. And yeah, having an attitude of gratitude all those people sleeping under bridges and stuff is pretty nice too. Yeah, and you know when I have a chance, I I do try to support them when I can. There was one year I uh, I went to the the thrift store because I'd read an article somewhere where um, one of the biggest challenges for people who are homeless, and I was surprised this never had occurred to me because I haven't had this challenge. But one of the biggest challenges for people who are homeless is socks, and how important their socks are to their health. Because if they get wet or damp socks, uh, their feet get wet and they get sick, and it's hard to dry out your socks. And having good socks is a real challenge for homeless people. So I went to the to thrift stores in Salvation Army. And I bought a whole bunch of socks, and I bought um, scarves, and I bought winter hats, and I I bought. Uh, um, we have a handbook for the streets in the Twin Cities. Both Minneapolis and St. Paul have a handbook for the streets for homeless. It's a resource book for homeless people. So I grabbed a bunch of those and I made. I really and I put a dollar in each of them. I made little Christmas packages. So I, I wrapped them all up and put a bow on them and put a little. You know, I'm getting choked up. Yeah, put a little name tag on them. And it said in the two. It said I put. I think I put my beloved and um. And from, I think I put from, I think I put God in the from part. So I was driving around town with, you know, half a dozen or more of these little packages on my passenger seat because I'd come, because I was doing courier work, so I was always driving around town, come to the corners. There's always someone standing there with a sign looking for money, looking for a handout. Well, you know, I would roll down the window, and this is during the wintertime, you know, I'd hand them a Christmas package. And the look on their face, because they're used to people handing them a dollar or something or some money, but to get a Christmas present was just like such a shock to them. They're like, what is this? Who is it? You know, so it was really fun to give them Christmas presents of something, socks that I knew they needed. And I did scarves because they fit anybody, hats because they fit anybody. Someone said, why don't you get mittens or gloves? I'm, well, mittens or gloves, you kind of got to size them more. But, but socks are pretty generic. So you can do uh, hats and scarves are just basic. So just trying to get them stuff to take care of them. Just show them some love. It's not, I, you know. You can't make – it's like you can't make the world a better place, but you can always make your world a better place. And so I kind of go, where can I make my world a better place? Are you religious? 
yes, I used to just say I'm, I'm spiritual. I was I was born and raised Roman Catholic, um, and then I used to say I was just spiritual. But now I'm getting much more back into my my Catholic faith, which I know some people go, oh, Catholics, oh no, <laughs> you know, stay back, <laughs> you're the bad ones, and uh, <laughs> we're definitely less than perfect. But uh, you know, we're we're doing our best. So yes, I'd say I'm religious. What do you think are the main causes of homelessness? What do I think the what? The main causes of homelessness. Main cause of homelessness. Wow, that's a great question. Main cause of because I was actually homeless for a little while. Um, I was homeless for a few months, not not a long time. And you know, even when I say I'm, I was homeless for a little while, again, I was very, very, very fortunate. And what I what I mean by that was, um, I was able to afford to put myself up in a. Uh, in an extended stay hotel for a little while, uh, and then when I wasn't able to do that anymore, I, a friend of mine had reached out and said, "Hey, you know what? I got a, a sofa in my living room that's yours if you want it for a little while." So I, I was on the sofa for a while. So um, mine was just a—it it came out after you know I lost my job and all that stuff. There was a whole bunch of um, compounding things that happened that got me to be there. But boy, I would think like brain injury—how each one is unique as a fingerprint. I bet you get the same thing with homeless people because I know when I talk to guys in prison. It's the same thing. Everyone's got a very unique story. I think the, there may be some similarities and some overlap, um, but I think each story is probably unique. And, boy, I, just, I guess I just don't know enough about it to say what I think is like one of the bigger or main causes of it. But I'm, I'm saying I'm answering your question by not answering your questions. I'm sorry about that, but thank you for the question, though. Thank you for answering. Yeah. Thank you, Philip. Hi, Penelope. Are you still there? Did you have anything else that you wanted to ask Tom? Hey, Kim and Tom and Philip. Um, gosh, I really, you know, I really can't think of anything more to add because, you know, Tom, and you've just been so um, expansive, which I really appreciate, and not only on your on your story but on your responses and also um, kind of drawing in um you know, the the work and our mission statement with NASCA and to, um, you know, your volunteer efforts um, in your work with the Men's Center. So, you know, I really appreciate you doing that because I definitely see where there's a, there's a fit there um, and, and possible support for some of uh, our NASCA family members that may be, um, you know, um, uh, within, uh, um, geographically within your area. And I, yeah, I think and I, it- I was just wanted to comment too. The interesting thing about that too is, prior to COVID, we'd have support groups, and everybody had to be close to the Twin Cities area or somewhat close to could drive into the support groups. But when COVID came, we all kind of had to shut down, so we opened some Zoom accounts so the groups could continue to meet on Zoom. And we've we've also I didn't mention our gay issue support group or our sexually evolving man support group, but we'd have these meetings on Zoom. And we started getting guys from New York State or from Michigan or from California or Nevada or from uh, South Dakota attending our groups. And now that we're opening up after COVID, these guys have made good connections. They're like, well, we want to keep these guys in the group. So now even though we were kind of meant to be just a a local Twin Cities men's center, uh, we are starting to draw uh, people from around the country. So people from NASCA who are interested in a support group, most of our groups are at least having an online option, so they can always reach out to us, and if they want to attend a support group, they're more than welcome to. There's no fee for our support groups. We, we ask for donations, but the the reality is some people can't afford to donate, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, on more than one occasion, I'm getting choked up again, on more than one occasion, I'd be at the office <clears throat> opening the mail, and there'd be a, a check for $500 or $1,000 or so, and there'd be a note in it too saying, 
Back in 1983, I was flat broke, and I was at the end of my rope, and I came to the men's center, and I went to your support groups, and I got the help I needed, but I never gave any money because I didn't have any money. Well, now here it is 30, 40 years later. My life has turned around, and now i got some money. I'm giving you some money so you can keep your doors open for the next person that doesn't have a dollar that needs your help. So, I mean, that's happened more than once. You know, we don't charge anything we ask, and if you can't give it, you don't have to. And you don't have to come back 20 years later and give us a 1000 You don't have to. But if you want to, that's great, but you're not required to. So, uh, yeah, we really want to be um, – we never want a dollar to keep someone from coming to us for help and support. So. That's a great story. That is a great story. Uh, my only other question was, what, uh, any, any more um, new projects in your future? New projects in my future. Let's see. Uh, well, getting my coaching back up and running again is, is like the big one that's on my, on my radar. Um, and then as far as the Alternatives to Violence Project, they're trying to get back into the prisons. They're categorized under an educational program. And in the prisons, when they got to make a cut somewhere, education is one of the first things to get cut. Um, so we were one of the first things cut. And now the prisons are starting to open up. The, the Men's Center's done a lot for, with prison, too. And what we've done mostly is... Um, when when you're in prison and you're getting close to uh, getting out soon, um, you're you're going to be transitioning is what the word they use. So um, where they have transitions fairs where they'll have a big fair at the prison and they'll have all these vendors come in with different services or offerings that they, that may help guys when they get out of prison from getting your driver's license, getting your ID, getting a place to live, getting a job, whatnot. And so we've always been participating in transitions fairs and. Um, We've been doing them virtually the past few years because they weren't doing them in person, but now um, we're going to be attending our first uh, transitions fair in person within the, within the next couple of weeks. We're really excited that the prisons are opening up enough at least to have in-person transitions fairs. And there was another prison in uh, town here, too, where quarterly, they, well, they have a transitions class. They would ask us to come in quarterly and do like an hour-and-a-half presentation on the men's center. And... Uh, we're now going back into that prison in person too, so they're starting to open up. So it's really, really good to see that the prisons are opening up, and that means I'm, I'm hoping that means the Alternatives to Violence Project will be getting back into the prisons because, um, you know, like I said, that's one thing that's interesting about the Alternatives to Violence Project in prisons. There's a facilitation team that runs the weekend or runs workshop, but half of them are people from the outside. And half of them are prisoners on the inside. Remember how I said the third workshop is training to facilitate? Well, if they go through that training to facilitate, they can actually start facilitating workshops while they're still in prison. So I, I worked with a lot of guys in prison who'd gone through the workshops and, and wanted to become facilitators. And I could, I could tell you prison stories till, till, the, till the cows come home, as it were. You know. But, yeah, um, so I, I know a lot of guys in prison who I've known for a long time that I just have not been able to see because, because of the COVID and stuff and just hear how they're doing and, and find out what's going on with them and, and check in with them because a lot of them would really, were really enthusiastic about that program. And there was one guy I worked with. He, he, had, he had told me um, <clears throat> he'd taken every educational program that that prison offered, every single one of them, because he wanted to get as much education out of it as he could. And he said, Alternatives to Violence Project, it's the only one I'll go back to. It's the only one because it's the one that really gives him hands-on useful tools that he can use. And I mean, I even gave him a tool inadvertently, which, which he used to great success. Uh, and I, that's the thing. You, we share in these workshops, we talk about stuff, we talk about ideas and concepts. And the nice thing is guys don't have to wait till they get out of prison to try them. They can try them right there in while they're still in prison with their celly, with the, with the CO, with someone else on the block, you know. Um, I had one, uh, one guy I worked with a lot. He, uh, 
he was I told a story that uh, from my from my life about um where I used an alternative to violence in in a work situation was was really kind of a it was a really kind of a combative work situation and I was I was a temp employee was I wasn't even my real job so I didn't want any conflict so I, I you know um, and this is before I even got into the alternative to violence project, but it, it it nicely demonstrated the technique, and I shared that with with the group, and the group were like, "How could you do that? How? Well, why didn't you? If that were me, I'd have blown up. I'd have done this." I'm like, "Yep, yep." And I was like, "But I, you know, I I was there for my paycheck. I didn't want any problems. I wanted to get through the job, and I I wanted to I wanted to work well with everybody." And so I told the guy this, and he had taken what he had learned there, and he said there was this one correction officer in the in the prison that he just did not, could not stand, did not get along with him, just didn't like him at all. But a lot of times that corrections officer was with a guard dog. Well, this inmate also did a lot with dogs when he was on the outside. So he decided to remember what, remember what I had told him. He said, you know, I'm going to go up and I'm just going to say hi to them, just nicely say hi to them. And then after a while, I'm going to start asking about the dog, ask him if he likes dogs, talk about his dogs. So he kind of really built very slowly built a, a, a casual, not relationship, not a friendship, but uh, a an ability to work with this guy and because um, he said that that corrections officer was always busting his chops always on his case always gave him a hard time but he said after doing that after reaching out because that's one of the techniques um, in alternatives to violence we use a, a set of principles called uh, transforming power there's like 12 or 14 steps to transforming power and one of them is reach for that something good in others so he saw the corrections officer with the dog, and he said, okay, he likes dogs, I like dogs. I'm going to reach for the something good in that guy. So he kept reaching out for that, and, and the, the CO responded. He didn't bust his chop so much. He didn't give him such a hard time. He said, I still can't stand the guy, but at least I get along with him. I can, I get along. He doesn't, he's not on my case anymore. So you know, it's not necessarily about liking people, but it's about what can you do to peaceably get along with him and, and, and have a positive outcome where, you know, and so that was a big success story, and I could go on and on and on with prison success stories that just you know really mean a lot when i I bring my silly little story from from what not my life because you know, some of these guys in prison are in for some they've had some challenging lives i mean they've had some challenging lives before prison and in prison uh I probably don't need to say this, but being in prison is not a cakewalk um uh, it's not it's not an easy easy way to live your life. So they had it tough before they got there. They got it tough in there. And if I can take one of my stories from when I was a kid or, or from when I'm an adult and share that, and it's, it's enough to, to click that bulb and put a light on or put a new idea in someone's head. And um, I could, like I said, I could go on and on with those stories. It's, it's, it's very rewarding to me to, to be able to give back like that. Oh, Tom, thank you. I, I love your heart. And how you get choked up, I think that. Thank you. That's good because that's, that's so the thing. In, yeah. <laughs> in prison, I, people go. Oh, people go. Oh, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start crying. So don't worry. If you think you're gonna start crying, I'm probably gonna start crying before you. So don't worry about it. I'll be right with you. So. Oh, and that's a. That was one thing too. There was a guy I worked with in prison. He had a traumatic brain injury. And uh, so, and I so I I, get, I I don't have a traumatic brain injury, but he but I I I get it, you know. So. He was struggling because we do we do exercises and talk about stuff, and literally two minutes later, he'd have no idea what we're talking about. And uh, the guys in prison were very supportive of him. They're like, "Ah, oh, come on, you'll be able to do it. You'll remember this." Da, da, da. Not understanding what it's like to forget something when you have a brain injury, and they were supportive and trying to be positive. But the, he was really struggling, and he just. But I was able to sit down with him, you know, 
practically nose to nose with them. And so the entire group were, were sitting in a big circle. And um, I'm sitting like nose to nose with them. And as if no one else is there, it's like just him and me. And I said, I said, you know, I've got a brain injury too. I get it. I get it. I, I know you can't explain it because I, I can't either, but I, I, I get it. And none of these people might be able to understand it, but I, I get it. When you say you can't remember it, I get it. Um, and you're not alone in that. I said, don't. Because he was like, I'm going to spend two and a half days in here. I'm going to come back on Monday and not even remember it at all. I won't know a thing about it. I'm like, but that's okay. That's okay. In the here and the now, you're living it. In the here and the now, you're working it. And you might forget all of it tomorrow. And you might not. And it's all okay. So. It might stick, in not it? You never know. What's that? <laughs> yeah, he, he might. Something you never know. Stick. He might. <laughs> yeah, you know. It, yeah, it's, yeah, so. Well, so that was cool because I think that's the only guy in prison with a brain injury where I really, really got to sit down and talk brain injuries with him. And it was, I think it was good for the entire group to see, too, that brain injuries, it's not, just, it's not that you just have a bad memory. Your brain literally doesn't work the same way anymore. It just, it's not the same. It's not the same organ that everybody else has in their head. It's a, it's a different organ, and it's, it's very unique. And so I think everybody kind of got a clue when I did that that there was something different happening there. And they really got to see someone really being honest and being of service and, and truly reaching out. So, oh. Yeah, I wonder. Um, so going back to the actual, like your surgery and your injury and everything. Sure. So is that at the top of your, so it was, because you said you, you had to stay within through your skull. So it's at the top of your head. It's just the very entrance of where the spinal fluid stuff goes in. Well, no, but the, the, the cyst was basically in the center of my brain. So that's why he had to shift the, oh, wow. my brain and my skull so the, the seam was by the hole. Then he kind of dug his way through the seam of my brain to get to the center because the cyst was in the center of my brain. So that's, uh, of course, because I have to do everything the hard way. So I have to put, I can't have a, a cyst at the top of my brain where it's easy to get to. No, I have to put it right in the middle where it's hard to get to because I'm Irish and stubborn and I can't make it easy for you. So. <laughs> now, is there a chance that it could come back? Have they ever said it, that? It, it is. Yes. Actually, about five or six years after uh, the surgery, because um, I was getting it, I was getting an MRI every year. And so five or six years after the surgery, the doctor said, eh, I can't tell. It looks like it might be a little bit bigger. Or maybe you're just, the camera got it at a different angle, but I'm not sure. Let's come back next year and see what it looks. So I came back next year. Goes, yeah, it's a little bit bigger, but it, it looks like it's stabilized. So um, it, it could, it, when that was the thing after surgery, he said it could come back very quickly, very fast, and very big. So that was another problem after surgery. It could come back really, really quick, and it, it didn't. But uh, it has changed at least size and shape a little bit um, about five or six years after the surgery, and I haven't had it checked in, the, in a number of years now, so I don't know what it's doing. But I think if I start going blind again, I think I'll probably know it's time to go in for a checkup or something. So, well, you know. yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't get to that point for you oh. again. And it doesn't hurt to sneeze anymore. Sneezing doesn't hurt my head. Oh, and doesn't hurt my ear. 
I remember in the 90s, I would sneeze. I remember literally saying, I feel like I'm going to blow my head right off with these sneezes. Because it really, because when you sneeze, all the contractions, you, you pump some spinal fluid in your brain, and it comes right back down. But uh, I was pumping it all up in there, and it, it couldn't go back down. So I was just, all this pressure in my head. So I remember saying, I, numerous times, said, I think I'm going to blow my head off with one of these sneezes. Because it, it hurt, it hurt to sneeze that bad. And my eyes would hurt too, so. Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> well, I survived. That's that's the good news. I survived the surgery, so yeah. I lived. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, you had anything else that you wanted to say or or fill up? Both of your lines actually. Oh, actually, you know, I just wanted to say one more thing, and that is, you know, you're talking about sharing your own personal, you know, history and experience of having an acquired brain injury and when you can, you know, go into some place where you give back like the prison and you can, uh, you've met with other individuals that have had brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries, and you can actually share your experience of, you know, um, going through a surgery and being able to still find a way to, to, you know, to give back and help others and show them that there's, you know, there is life after a brain injury um, and recovery and healing. I mean, that's part of the NASA mission is hope and healing. So I just want to thank you for sharing your story because um, that is, you know, part of the huge part of the NASA mission statement. And, you know, you can survive a trauma and you can find purpose in it um, and hope um, as you heal and you can help others. So I just, I really want to say thank you for sharing that. Just really warms my heart. You're most welcome. I'm I'm always happy to talk about that stuff, especially if it helps people. So that's really all I have to say. But thank you, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, Les, did you have anything else that you wanted to say to Tom before the end of our show? Um, no, thank you. I don't think I have anything else to say. Philip, yeah, we're just. Um, I am so glad that you came on and talked about this acquired brain injury. I think that it's possibly going to be very informational, insightful to a lot of people. Um, I don't want to say that that I experienced the same thing as you, but I, I can definitely tell. I've I've had four spine surgeries. And the last one that I had two years ago, I have not been able to get my brain back either. Mm. And I don't know. And that was the cervical. Cervical um, three through seven was fused. And and I struggle all the time. I do exactly what you 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 said earlier. I I can be in the middle of a sentence and then just completely forget everything that I said. But sometimes... I can get it back, but um, I definitely noticed a difference in that this last surgery compared to some of the other surgeries that I've had. It's just yeah, really yeah. Close, getting that whole back yep. back together, and um, you know, we've talked about on the show. I, I know I've talked with Penelope about how our our child abuse has most likely paid a into some of our spine issues that her and I both mm-hmm. have talked about. 
um, and, you know, back issues and, and all the stuff that's going on back there. And you don't realize it. I don't think it even occurred to me until right. a few years ago, really. And then I look back and I said, oh, I was thrown through a wall. That probably messed up my right. back a little bit, you know? And right, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, yeah. You know, something wasn't right there. And then I had a car accident as well that mm-hmm. um, made my cervical 3-4 was fused. That was 20 years ago. And then it decided to break down 20 years later. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, but it, it can, I know it seems like there's a possibility that this acquired brain injury could be something that people who go through trauma as children could definitely get as well. You know, just right, right. you talk a lot about how your body, your body keeps the score on, on what has happened to you. And mm-hmm. it takes a big, a big toll on, on your body and how you, you grow and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, but thank you for sharing your story for sure. Cause it's been really, you're most insightful. welcome. And um, I love what you're doing. Twin Cities Men's Center. That's amazing, and I'm, I love your heart. You know, we can hear your heart coming out as you talk about that, um, your work that you're doing, and and then I will just keep, you know, praying that you can get um, going on your coaching business, and you know, just thrive with that because you deserve to have, to have everything that you you desire to come true. So. Right, and I just want to reiterate too: if if people need our support groups anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, a lot of them have the Zoom option. So reach out to us and let us know. We're more than happy to incorporate people who wherever we can support them. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that is open to other people, or if it's just in Minnesota. No, like I said, so uh, when we kind of were opening back up, the Gay Issues Group had guys from from across the country, and they didn't want to lose them. So they, they, you know, we've had anger management people come from South Dakota and from California and Nevada, and so yeah, our support groups, as long as they're online, I think we, I think our Addiction Busters had someone from out of state too. Um, so yes, definitely, if it's it's not restricted by geography at all anymore. It was when you kind of had to drive to the center, but now you don't have to do that. So we definitely welcome anyone from anywhere who needs the support. We're, we're happy to support them if we can. So. Yeah. One of the pluses of the pandemic, isn't it? That it's opened up a lot of things on, on zoom. <laughs> right. It was unexpected. It, Cause, and that's the thing because um, yeah. the men's center kind of formed because Back in the 60s, going in the 70s, there was the, the women's movement, which was really big. And what happened in, was guys around the country started going, wow, these women are really doing some good stuff, and they're moving and shaking, and they're really improving themselves. And maybe we should improve ourselves, too. Or we're going to be left in the dust. So uh, men's centers kind of popped up all over the country. I don't know how many of them. There, were, there, was, there was a lot of them. Um, and for various reasons, they've, they've all folded. Some, some were taking uh, grants, from, uh, and they weren't able to live up to that. And, and some tried to become national really fast, and they we weren't able to support being national. And for a variety of reasons, all the other men's centers fell. But we stayed very local, stayed very grassroots. We never intended on branching out. And um, here we are 45, no, 50, 52 years later, no, 45 years later or so, we're still going, and without trying to, we're now kind of becoming the uh, the national men's center, unfor- uh, un- for better or for worse, because 
that was the thing too. I'd get calls from people in Florida or Texas or from New York State, and they'd go, "Hey, can you tell me where my, my where my local men's center is? I really need your help." And I had to say, you know what? Unfortunately, as far as I know, the Twin Cities Men's Center is your local men's center as close as you're going to get. And I couldn't offer them anything because I didn't know of any other men's center. But now with the Zoom, we are able to support people from around the country, which I think is a really great thing. So without trying to, we went from being very local grassroots, all from donations and all from memberships and no government money, some private grants, but, you know, all very grassroots and fundraising. So now we're kind of reaching out and helping more people. So we're really excited to be about doing that. And actually, our anger management class we're starting to there's a possibility we'll be uh doing anger management classes out of atlanta georgia too so we're getting, we might be having co-anger management in minneapolis and georgia at the same time which would be really cool so yeah that's great so tell us um then how to get a hold of you so how would we find you and find the group yeah, so the easiest thing is, is to start with our website. Our website is a, is TCMC, like Twin Cities Men's Center, tcmc.org, because so, we're nonprofits, it's .org, and that's got all the information. But you can always reach out to me. Uh, my email address is Tom M, so T-O-M-M, at tcmc.org. And uh, the, the office line is 612-822-5892. Again, the office line is 612-822-5892. Um, and if you're in the Twin Cities, you can come down to see us. We're right on the corner of 33rd and Hennepin Avenue South in the Uptown Office Park, Suite 55 in the lower level. But, yeah, most people probably won't be that close to town, but just in case you are. So, but I'd start with tcmc.org, and there's a Contact Us button, and there's, there's lots of information on our support groups and, and what we've got going on there. And so, yeah, that would be the best place to start, I think. Great, yeah. Oh, you can tell you say that once in a while. You've been doing that for a while. You go really fast. I was going to tell you oh, I know. your phone number, and then you did. So you were, you did good. <laughs> oh, I know, because I take so many so many calls during the day, and they'll say, hi, my name is Roy. And I'd like to – I'm like, oh, great. What was that name? And I'm like, so I realized that uh, repeating it's good, <laughs> say it nice and slow is good. That's the important stuff. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So are there any other, like, words of wisdom or nuggets or anything that you can give us this evening? Anything that you want to say about your, your coaching or anything? Yeah, well, I think I kind of touched on a little bit, but not in regards to the coaching. But one of the things that we work on in coaching is is perspectives. And I talked a little bit about maybe with the prison guys, too, where they get a new perspective. So, um and I, you know, everyone who's been abused as a child probably has a very unique, unique story. So I can't say this would apply to you particular, or say it would work for you. But um, exploring perspectives can be really, really powerful. Because I, I actually was doing a presentation for a while on uh, when I when I was laid off, and I I, I kind of put it out in a way where you know, because people, because what happened was I realized that people who got laid off with me, some of them were absolutely devastated by it. And I didn't feel so devastated by it. So I realized part of it was the story that I was telling myself and the story that they were telling themselves. And the same thing happened to us, but we were telling ourselves different stories. And I realized I could tell myself the same story that they're telling themselves and feel bad like they are, or I could look for a different perspective and how can I frame my story in a way that's that's not as as you know what, what, in a, frame it in a way that's more empowering as opposed to disempowering. So, and I mean, with child abuse, there's kind of like a hierarchy thing where you know the child doesn't have the hierarchy like a parent would have. So it may be challenging, but I would I would encourage them to look. And I'm not trying to sell coaching, but maybe look at a coach and or look at someone who wants to explore perspectives with you, or someone who knows about exploring perspectives and 
see, how can you see this from a different angle? How can you see this from a different point of view? What's a different take on this? So it's not about, it's, and that's the thing, it's not about lying to yourself. You're never denying what actually happened because what happened happened, but we put so much story on top of it, which you know may be supporting us, it may not be supporting us. So I would say, I would encourage you to kind of look at uh, perspectives. If you find someone to work with that with you, that'd be great. But challenge, and maybe challenge some of your beliefs. You might have some beliefs that came out of being abused that uh, really aren't valid. And that's the one thing I, I learned with my coaching. Um, we'll have beliefs in our heads, but if I can get my client to speak that belief, as soon as as soon as they speak the belief, then they actually hear it with their own ears, and the light bulb kind of goes on, and they go, "Oh my God, I can't believe I believe that." When I think it, it sounds fine, but when I when I say it out loud, it sounds ridiculous. I can't believe that's what I. Think. So even saying, you know, those beliefs that are holding you back, those limiting beliefs, um, challenge your limiting beliefs, and that's the thing too about limiting beliefs. A lot of times we don't even know that we have them, so it's that's it's tough to how do you challenge it if you don't know you have it, but. Um, Examine your beliefs. Look at your beliefs and see see if they're true because they they may be and they may not be. So, uh, I know that's something else that we've talked about on here as well many times. Is um, well, we talk about generational trauma and yep. um, and how you a lot of times it's carried on because you don't see anything different. That's just what you've right, always right. seen. That's what is always done, and you just yep. continue on with it. It takes um, you know, it takes you somebody to in in that family to open their eyes and say, "No, I'm not going to continue to just carry this on and on and on. I'm going to change that, and that's right. what changes trajectories too of family systems." And um, so, yeah, I and mean, it's like that with anything that independent. Yeah, and that's the thing about it too is. Um those things that hang over the baby's crib with things hanging, it's not a kaleidoscope, a calliope, what am I talking, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, mobile, yeah, like the baby. Mobile, 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 yeah. Yeah, mobile. I'm kaleidoscope, yeah. okay, mobile. <laughs> got the mobiles that hang down over the baby's crib and it's got these little things and it swirls around. And families are like that. We've all got our, our place and we all kind of have our own weight there and it, when they're all there together, um, it all kind of balances out and it stays stable. But imagine if you were to walk up to that and take a scissors and cut one of the strings and one of them would drop off the whole thing would just really be in chaos and we kind of just go tipsy, topsy-turvy. And when we try to change ourselves or try to improve ourselves, we're cutting that string. And everybody else in the family, they don't want the topsy-turvy. They want that stability. So they, in a lot of ways, they don't want you to change, So, which is unfortunate because the people that love us a lot of times don't want us to change. And sometimes we have to be willing to cut that string and let the, the mobile just kind of go a little bit crazy for, for our own benefit. And that can be a scary thing to do because where, where's a mobile that I can fit in now that it, where it's, it's going to be balanced, where it's going to be nice, where the little music will be playing and everything's happy, you know, because now I just set my family in the whole topsy-turvy thing. So, yeah, it can be... A challenging and scary thing to do. Yeah. Well, thank you for for being open to diving into some of that stuff. It just sounds like you're you're very well balanced. <laughs> well, and I know you I have your you moments, though, I'm so. sure, but you sound like you're pretty well. <laughs> I do what I can, so. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for that. This evening and um, yeah, sharing all this stuff and and we'd love to have you, you know, if you ever want to just pop on and and be a part of our panel, you're welcome to. You're a, 
uh, part of the NASCA family. And so cool, thank you. we're just honored to have you here this evening. And yeah, again, we are on scan number 3123. And we've been talking with Tom this evening from the, the Twin Cities Men's Center. And he has just been such a delight and, and so informative on a lot of things tonight. So we're really happy that that you were here with us. And um, Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Anything else? Does anybody else want to say? We've got just about a couple minutes left. <laughs> Um, I guess I could turn mute off. It just, you know, thank you so much, Tom, for coming on. And I, I've learned so much about an acquired brain injury um, tonight. I had never really been familiar with that um, particular type of brain injury. And I, it's just so educational and um, and also inspiring, the fact that you've been able to, you know, um, give back in such a profound way. So I just wish to really thank you for coming on and, and Kim um, for hosting and doing a great job of it, and Philip for coming on, showing your support and your great questions. It's just um, I love being a part of NASCA, and so I just wish to thank everyone. Great show. Yeah, I, I feel like I want to throw this out too, real quick. The, the acquired brain injury. So I have a colloidal cyst in my brain, but you don't have to have that to have an acquired brain injury. So an acquired brain injury is just something that comes about naturally. I don't know if I was clear on that. So it could be a cyst, it could be something else, but it's, it's something that happens naturally as opposed to a traumatic brain injury. So that that has been very, very informative. Um, well, we are just so glad that y'all were on with us this evening. Um, again, we're so happy that Philip joined us, and thank you, Penelope, for co-hosting with me this evening, and both of you for just for always having such great questions. I really appreciate you being on here with us, and. Um, you know, as we always say at the end of our show, that there are enough eyes and ears out there in the world to watch out for all children. So please, if you see something, please say something, and let's make a difference for the kids in this world. Thank you, and thank you, Tom. Have a great evening. Take care, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. You are forgotten after all that you've done. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.